Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, I wanted to do something very special this week. We have just begun the fourth week of Advent, and Christmas is four days away. So I recorded some time ago in a live class the Christmas story, a two-part teaching that I'd like to present as our podcast for this week, Monday and Wednesday. So Monday, today, we'll be looking at the Annunciation, and Wednesday, at the birth of Christ. And then Friday, we celebrate Christmas. So this is my Christmas gift to all of you. Have a blessed Christmas, and I'll be back with you again after Christmas with a brand new series on Scripture Uncovered. Blessings to you, and Merry Christmas. Bye-bye now. Welcome to Logos Bible Study. This special presentation of the Christmas story has been recorded live at St. Peter's by the Sea Presbyterian Church in Huntington Beach, California. So pull up a chair as Dr. Creasy opens with part one, The Annunciation. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here with you at the beginning of Advent, here at the start of winter a time when we're moving into a season that remembers the birth of Christ, the Christmas season, the Christmas story. The Christmas story begins in Genesis 1, verse 1, when we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And across chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, God creates all that is, and at each act of creation he pronounces it good. And at the final act of creation, on day six, he pronounces what he has done very good. And I always have to hope that the story might end at the end of Genesis chapter 2. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve, the jewels and the crown of God's creation, walk in the cool of the afternoon in the Garden of Eden with God himself. They are in intimate relationship with one another, Adam and Eve and God, and all is very good. But every good story has a conflict, and our story has a conflict as well. And that conflict begins in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3 we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now we need to pause here for just one moment. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Just who is this serpent? Well, we find the answer to that question in Revelation chapter 20, at the end of our story. In Revelation chapter 20, we read in verse 1, John writes, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The serpent we meet in Genesis 3 is Satan, fallen from heaven. 
We have a number of allusions in Scripture to this fall of Satan, primarily one from Jesus himself in Luke chapter 10, when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we could track that entire substory at another time. But suffice it for now that in the garden, the serpent was waiting. Satan, who had rebelled against God, had fallen from heaven with a third of the angels with him, and now he's looking for revenge. And how will, how will he get it? He'll go to this new creation. He'll step into the Garden of Eden. And he'll say to these two creatures whom God loves, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And can't you just see Satan standing next to that tree, touching it and saying, you won't die. Look. Why, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. She didn't go off and tempt Adam with an apple. He was standing right there. And notice there's no apple in the story at all. The apple on the tree is not the problem. The pear on the ground is the problem, right? <laughs> now the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and as the 1560 Geneva Bible reads, they made britches for themselves. <laughs> well, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God knows exactly what's happened. Adam and Eve are in an intimate covenant relationship with God. And an intimate covenant relationship with God carries responsibilities. They know what the responsibilities are, but they have chosen to ignore those responsibilities and go their own way. And in doing so, sin enters the world. Our conflict in the story, sin. Now we'll define sin here, and this is important for our overarching Christmas story. We'll define sin not as an act that one commits, but a condition one is in. Sin is a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. See the difference? I would not have held up the 7-Eleven had I been in a right relationship with God. Sin is a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. And sin has four characteristics. Number one, it is very subtle. No one wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I think I'll sin big today. It just kind of happens. It makes its way into your life. 
very quietly, very stealthily. And didn't we read in chapter 3, verse 1, that the serpent was the most crafty or shrewd or subtle of all God's creatures? And that's exactly how sin operates, subtly, craftily, shrewdly. Sin is subtle. Number two, sin distorts our judgment. Rather than confronting it and dealing with it, we rationalize around it and explain it away. Number three, sin escalates. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. And barring the radical intervention of God's grace, it will get so big, it will kill you. And number four, sin cascades down through generations. It doesn't stop with you. It affects everyone around you your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your friends, everyone. That's the way sin operates. And we can see it right here in our story. Prior to entering chapter 3, everything was very good. Adam and Eve were on an intimate relationship with one another and God. But now something happens. They have turned their backs on God. They have gone their own way. They hide in the bushes and they're ashamed. Second generation, Cain murders Abel. Brother kills brother. Cain murders Abel. And when confronted, Cain said, what, am I my brother's keeper? And he's impudent. By the seventh generation, chapter 4, verse 19, Lamech married two women. Now women are no longer partners, they're property. One named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Yabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. They had children. And Lamech said to his wives in verse 23, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. I have killed a man because I didn't like the way he looked at me. Lamech is arrogant. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6 at verse 5, we read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And I'm only on page 14 of a 2,000-page book. <laughs> Sin entered the world and a downward spiral began and it spiraled downward rapidly indeed. If you were God, what would you do at this point? Well, God gives humanity a second chance. God takes a big wet sponge and washes the board clean and gives humanity a second chance. Noah steps off the ark. He plants a vineyard. He gets drunk. He curses his children. And by Genesis chapter 11, we are at the Tower of Babel. It happened all over again. All over again. The lesson that we can learn from Genesis chapters 1 through 11, what I call the primeval chapters of the Bible, is that left to our own devices, we are incapable of resolving the issue of sin. We simply cannot do it. So, once again... God will step forward. In Genesis chapter 12, we read, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, 
Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Abram, later called Abraham, lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is down near the Persian Gulf in southern Iraq of today. He moved northward to Haran, and God told him to leave Haran and go to the land of Canaan, the land that today is modern-day Israel. And then God made a covenant with Abram. It is an unconditional covenant. Notice there is no if clause. If you do A, then I will do B. No, an unconditional covenant. And here it is. Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. The Abrahamic covenant, one of two hinges upon which the door of salvation will swing. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, God introduces the plan of salvation. And we had a foreshadowing of it earlier on. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world, God confronts the man, the woman, and the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, at verse 9, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And of course, God knows very well that he did. And the man said, well, the woman that you put here with me, it's your fault. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent, you see the blame? <laughs> the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, the serpent, above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And listen carefully. And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head. He will defeat you. And you will strike his heel. Someone in the future will come into this world who will defeat you and make things right. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first foreshadowing of one who will come to resolve this issue of sin. Well, it's not going to happen yet won't be for quite a while. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, the plan begins. God chooses Abram. He makes a covenant with him. And sure enough, God makes good on that covenant. Abram's name is later changed to Abraham. Abraham and his wife Sarah have a child, Isaac. Isaac and his wife Rebekah have a child, Jacob. Jacob and his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and their two servants have children, who become the 12 founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we have a 
an extended family of 73 people in all in Egypt with their brother Joseph, who has become prime minister of Egypt. And it is quite a story as we travel through Genesis. God did say, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. And sure enough, at the end of Genesis, 73 people in all, that extended family in Egypt, and we read in chapter 50, at verse 25, And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. How long would Adam and Eve have lived had not sin entered the world? Eternally. They were created to be eternal. In fact, after the fall, God said, I cannot allow them access to the tree of life any longer lest they live forever. They're in a condition of sin. And eternity in a condition of sin is the very definition of hell. So God places a limit on their lives. Death enters the world after sin. And we see it happen. The downward spiral begins. Chapter 5 of Genesis, we walk through the graveyard. Methuselah, 969 years old. Adam, 930. And the ages just come down and down and down until we get, well, Abraham dies at 175, Isaac 180, Jacob 147, Joseph 110. In Psalm 90, ascribed to Moses, Moses says, the span of a man's life is 70 years or 80 for those who are strong. Rather like today. Today, in the United States, in the early part of the 21st century, the average lifespan of an American today is 78.3 years. Just like Moses said. So this downward spiral begins. Genesis begins with birth and eternity. And it ends in death in a coffin in Egypt. You see the framing of the story? Well, the conflict is rolling on out across our narrative, and we have a whole lot of very good stories as we follow this narrative from book to book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. God forms Israel. God doesn't choose Israel. He builds Israel, and he makes a covenant with his people with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and later with David. David is the great king of Israel. And if you turn over with me to 1 Chronicles 17, verses 10 through 14, God makes a covenant with David. We have the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, the Davidic covenant in 1 Chronicles 17. Now you might recall the story, toward the end of David's life, David wanted to build a temple for God. But God said to him, you know David, I don't really need a temple. I've never had one before. I don't particularly want one. And besides, I can't allow you to do it. You have a lot of blood on your hands. Not the blood of warfare, but the blood 
of Uriah the Hittite and his men whom David betrayed. It's a horrible story in itself. But God does say to David, and I think this is one of the most extraordinary things. Well, look at verse 7. We'll put it in for context. 1 Chronicles 17, verse 7. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be the ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on the earth. I will place you, David, in that great pantheon of heroes, of Achilles, Alexander the Great, David. Your name will be remembered forever. Stop and think about that. You look about the room, and within 50, 75 years, every single one of us will be dead. And within three to five generations, no one will even know we existed. How many people have their names remembered forever? And God said to David, I know you wanted to build a temple for me, but I'm going to do something for you. Your name will be remembered forever. In addition to that, second half of verse 10, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. I appreciate the gesture, David, but... I'll build a house for you. And when your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor, King Saul. I will set him, my son, Over my house and my kingdom forever, his throne will be established forever. God said to Abraham, through you all people on earth will be blessed. Abraham a covenant. He said to David, I will place one of your own flesh on the throne of Israel and he will reign forever. Well, he's certainly not referring to King Solomon, David's son who succeeds him. Solomon ultimately is a failure. No, he's referring to the one who will come, who will resolve this conflict of sin, the one we faintly saw in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the one who would crush the serpent and defeat him. So God's plan is on the move. From Genesis uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, to the Abrahamic covenant, to the Davidic covenant, and on up through our narrative to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 at verse 1. Now on my copy of the Bible, I'm on page 1,441. We have had a linear narrative from Genesis all the way up through Malachi... And now we turn the page to Matthew and we read. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Notice how Matthew, a Jew writing for a Jewish audience, latches right on to the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. 
the two hinges on which the door of salvation will swing. And Matthew goes right back to Genesis chapter 12. And he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was uh, I'm sorry, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. We go in a linear narrative from Abraham to David. And this genealogy will make two more jumps. From David's son Solomon to the Babylonian captivity and from the Babylonian captivity to Christ. What Matthew is doing is showing us that there is a unified linear narrative that stretches from Abraham right up to the birth of the Messiah himself. That the plan of salvation began back in Genesis 1 verse 1. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3. God puts the plan in place in Genesis 12 and we roll it out across the Hebrew scriptures. We read in verse 17 of Matthew 1, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Christ meaning the Messiah, the anointed one. So the one foreshadowed way back in Genesis 3 verse 15 is about to step onto the page of scripture. And we read in Matthew 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. This is where the Christmas story proper begins. But to tell the Christmas story, we need the context of the entire narrative which we now have. So this is how the birth of Christ came about. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 1. And what we're going to do is weave together the pieces of Matthew, Mark, and Luke to get a comprehensive story regarding the birth of Christ. In Luke chapter 1, at verse 5, we begin. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now we have an awful lot of information in this one sentence. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. In the Bible, there are four Herods. And we have to get them all straight. You don't want to mix them up or we get totally confused. The Herod we're speaking about here is Herod the Great. Herod the Great reigns as king under the authority of the Roman Empire. He's a local king, not an emperor, but a king appointed by Rome. And he reigns from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Herod the Great. He's called Herod the Great because he was a great builder, not particularly a great man. Actually, he was rather a sociopath. But he was a great builder. And it was during that time, 37 to 4 BC, that this story takes place. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, 
there was a priest named Zechariah. God establishes the priesthood back in Exodus when he brings the Israelites out of Egypt through the ten plagues. Moses leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea and down to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives his covenant people two great gifts. Gift number one is the law. Ten commandments, or better, ten principles by which a covenant people is to live with God and one another. And he gives them the tabernacle, a physical structure that enables a sinful people to gain access to an infinitely holy God. And he appoints Moses' brother Aaron as high priest. And Aaron's descendants will become priests as well. A priest, by definition in Scripture, stands between the people and God and speaks to God on behalf of the people. He's an intermediary between the people and God. A prophet, by the way, stands in the same position but looks the other direction. A prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. So there are two sides of one coin. The priesthood is established with Aaron as the first high priest and the descendants of Aaron, all of whom were of the tribe of Levi, are priests. In Scripture, you cannot aspire to be a priest, you cannot feel called to be a priest, you're either born a priest or you're not. It's you must be of the tribe of Levi. So Zechariah is a priest of the tribe of Levi and he was of the priestly division of Abijah. At the time of David, toward the end of David's life when he wanted to build a temple for God, God told him, I'm sorry, David, I can't allow you to build a temple, but as we read in 1 Chronicles 17, I'm going to build a house for you. Well, David gave a hearty aye, aye, sir, and then began to build the temple anyhow. David did everything except put one stone on top of another. It will be Solomon who will physically erect the temple. Solomon will begin to build that temple the fourth year of his reign, 966 B.C., and he will complete it in seven years, it will be dedicated in 958 B.C. We call it Solomon's temple, but it was really David's temple. David designed it. David financed it. David had the stones cut and brought to Jerusalem to build it. David paid the workmen. David wrote 73 of the 150 psalms that would be sung at the temple. David designed the vestments for the priests. David organized the priests into a very complex priesthood to serve at the temple. Truly, David did everything except pick up one stone and put it on top of another. When he died, he commanded his son Solomon to build the temple. Everything's ready. Build the temple. And he handed the blueprints over to Solomon. So, the priests were organized by David into 24 divisions. We read about it back in Chronicles. One of those divisions is the division of Abijah. Now, as we read along in Scripture, we find that after the Exodus, we get the Israelites out into the wilderness. They spend 40 years out in the wilderness. And the priests, once we enter the land, all the other tribes get land. When Israel goes into the land of Canaan, conquers it, 
the land is then allocated among the tribes. Every tribe, Judah, Simeon, Issachar, they all get land. And the land they get, the tribal territories, are bounded by natural topographical and geographical borders, mountains, streams, valleys, and so on. But the Levites get no land. Their job is to minister to the people. They get no land. However, they are given 48 towns and villages rather evenly scattered throughout Israel in which they will live that they might minister to the people. And with 24 divisions, each division will be on call for a two-week period to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. So each of the 24 divisions will have a two-week reserve duty in the summer, ministering at the temple. Now think about that. 48 towns scattered all throughout Israel, and if you're a priest like Zechariah, for two weeks out of every year, you come to Jerusalem and you serve at the temple. When David organized the priesthood, there were 1,000 priests in each division. Well, this story, Luke, takes place 1,000 years later. How many priests are in a division now? I don't know, 10,000, 20,000? The numbers grow, of course, over a millennium. So Zechariah is one of many priests in one of 24 divisions, the division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So she, too, is of the tribe of Levi. She's the daughter of a priest. Now, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Zechariah and Elizabeth are an elder, elderly couple. They have no children and it certainly doesn't appear that they ever will. Now, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, that is, he had his two-week reserve duty. He was serving as priest before God, and he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is a really big deal. When you come into Jerusalem as a priest for your two-week duty at the temple, you have thousands of priests coming in for their two-week duty at the temple. The temple is a big operation. Herod augmented the temple platform and the temple itself, and the platform in Jerusalem is the size of five football fields. The temple stood 16 stories, and that temple platform could accommodate up to half a million people on the platform. Three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles their pilgrimage festivals, all good Jews would come to Jerusalem to worship together. And the normal population of Jerusalem, about 100,000 people, would swell to over a million. And all the activity focused on the temple. You need a lot of people working that temple to make everything happen the way it's supposed to. Now, if you were one of the priests, what kind of job would you be doing during that two-week period? 
Well, there were a lot of jobs. Somebody would have to sweep the floor. Somebody would have to make sure the water systems were working correctly. Somebody would have to do the laundry for all the vestments. All the things that have to be done to host thousands and thousands of people for a week-long period. But the very best job, the very best, the one you would want, if you were a priest, the thing you were born to do was offer the prayers of the people before God. Because remember the definition of a priest is to stand between the people and God and speak to God on behalf of the people. Twice a day, morning and evening, a priest, one priest, would take a censer filled with incense, open the beautiful golden doors of the temple, step inside, and when he stepped inside, the entire interior of the holy place was covered in 24 karat gold. Ceiling, walls, floor, not just smooth gold, elaborately ornamented. And to the left was a menorah, a big lampstand made of solid gold. And it had seven flames burning on it, the only light inside the holy place. To the right was a table of showbread, an acacia wood table overlaid with pure 24 karat gold, and on top of that table were 12 loaves of unleavened bread, two stacks of six, and wine, bread and wine. And directly in front of the priest would be a small table, the altar of incense, made of acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold, on which the incense would be burned. Directly beyond that altar of incense was a curtain, an elaborately woven curtain of woven onto white fine twined Egyptian linen and embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And that curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies on the other side. Up until the Babylonian captivity, the Ark of the Covenant sat on the other side and the physical manifestation of God rested upon that Ark of the Covenant in the form of a pillar of cloud and fire. In Jesus' day, the Ark of the Covenant was long gone. At the Babylonian captivity, it disappears. On the other side of the curtain, the Holy of Holies was the place where God's name resided. The only person who could go into the temple itself was a priest, and only when he needed to be there, when there was something that had to be done. For example, burning the incense, or replenishing the oil in the menorah, or replacing the bread and wine weekly. That was all, and only one person went behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, and that was the great high priest himself, and only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was an infinitely holy place. So Zechariah is chosen by lot to burn incense before the Lord, to enter that temple and speak to God on behalf of the people, offer the prayers of the people. The incense is symbolic of the prayers of the people rising to God. 
Now I have to ask, how many times had Zechariah done this before? Probably never. He's one of 24 divisions with thousands of priests in each division. Each division serves two weeks at the temple and the jobs are allocated by lot. Everybody has a job to do and they're randomly chosen for those jobs. The best job, the one that you were born to do as a priest, is to offer the prayers of the people before God. I, I like to think of it, for those of you who are Roman Catholics, imagine if there was only one place in the world where Mass could be said, and that was St. Peter's Basilica on the main altar in Rome. And that was the only place. And of all the priests in all the world, they would be chosen by lot to offer Mass on that altar. And let's say we have Father so-and-so down the street who has been a priest for 40 years and has ministered to his people at the church, but he has never said Mass. He has never held up the bread and wine and consecrated the Eucharist. And he gets an email from Rome that he has been chosen by lot to say Mass at St. Peter's Basilica on June 23rd, 2010. It would be the crowning achievement of his life. It is what he was born to do. What would, what would all of us do? Well, Bill would put together a tour to Italy. <laughs> and we would all sign up and we would, uh, we would have a big going away party. Then we'd get on the airplane, we'd fly there and we would have a grand time supporting him the whole way. In fact, the night before he would say the Mass, we would have a big dinner. I, have a, I know a very nice restaurant near Vatican City. We'd have a good dinner there, and we would all be there. We would have signs saying we're from, you know, we're, we're from Huntington Beach, and uh, we would have a great time. But that's Zachariah. He has probably never done this before, and he probably never will again. He probably has never been inside that temple, because the only reason you go in is to do that limited number of things that need to be done. This is a big day in Zechariah's life. So, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Bill and his entire tour group were praying outside. <laughs> Zechariah opened those tall golden doors and he stepped inside. And it must have been an awesome sight. Oh, he had heard tales of it, but he had never been in there. And now he's in close proximity to the very heart of God. The door closed behind him, and the only light inside was the light from the, the menorah. And it flickered. The oil is pure virgin olive oil. It gives off no smoke. And it would have flickered on the gold of the ceiling and the walls and the floors. And he would have looked about and seen that altar of incense directly before him. And holding the censer, walked up to it in awe and seen the great curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And he stood before that altar and before he offered the incense and the prayers of the people, Zechariah closed his eyes and offered a prayer 
for himself. And Zachariah said, Father, this is the only time I've ever been here, and it may be the only time I ever will be here. And standing here in close proximity to you, I ask you, if there is any way, please give me a sign. He opened his eyes. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. He's standing in front of it. An angel is standing within touching distance on the right side of it. And when he opened his eyes, he about had a heart attack. <laughs> because the only one who's supposed to be in there is him. And when he walked in, there was no one there. And there's no other way in or out. And he had his eyes closed. And he opened his eyes. <laughs> Angels are not little hallmark cherub card creatures. <laughs> Angels are fearsome, magnificent, awe-inspiring, stunning, terrifying creatures. And they always, everyone in the Bible who sees an angel, the first thing an angel says to them is, fear not. <laughs> because as soon as you see one, you're going, <laughs> you're headed toward the floor. He saw an angel. When Zachariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. And the angel said, Fear not, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a delight and a joy to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. This child will be a Nazarite from birth. In Numbers chapter 6, we learn about the Nazarite vow. Any person, male or female, can take a Nazarite vow. It's a vow of separation to God. It's a vow during which you leave your family, you leave your employment, you leave your responsibilities, you leave your computer, your cell phone, your uh, iPod, you leave it all behind and you spend time solely with God. It's a time of dedicating yourself to God. Think of it in modern terms as going off on a two-week retreat to a very remote location at a Trappist monastery in the mountains. You and God. That's all. And anyone can take a vow to do that. The vow is temporary. And many people we find take them. Paul takes a Nazarite vow. We see that back in 1 Corinthians. Anyone can take a Nazarite vow. But being a permanent Nazarite from your birth until your death, that is highly unusual. Very unusual. There are, there are only a handful of people who have done such things. Samson was a permanent Nazarite. Samuel was a permanent Nazarite. John the Baptist is a permanent Nazarite. And I can't think of any other off the top of my head. They are so unusual that they're notable. And when you have a man who's a permanent Nazarite, he plays an important part in the plan of salvation. So this boy to be born will be a permanent Nazarite. A Nazarite does not cut his hair. A Nazarite does not drink anything that comes from the grapevine, any wine or fermented drink. 
He is set apart to God. That's what this boy will be. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the power and spirit of Elijah the prophet, the great prophet from the Old Testament, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He will be the one who paves the way for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the one who will resolve the conflict of sin, the coming of the one foreshadowed in Genesis 3, verse 15, promised in Genesis 12, 2 and 3 to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, and promised to David in the Davidic covenant in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 10 through 14. He will be the one who will pave the way. In fact, if you turn over to left, to the beginning of Matthew, and then go a few more pages left, you'll be at the end of Malachi. And in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi is about 430 B.C. In Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, we read, God speaking, Look, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Before me. And notice it's God speaking. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And at chapter 4, verse 5, Look, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that day comes. Turn the page, Matthew, genealogy, Christ entering. John the Baptist will be the one prophesied in Malachi who will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. We are right on the edge of his arrival. Luke 1.16, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, Zechariah is stunned. He asked the angel, how, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife, have you seen her lately? She's old too. No? There's a parallel here to Abraham and Sarah. God promises Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant two things, progeny and property, that is real estate and people. And Abraham is a hundred years old before Isaac is born. <laughs> Even better, Sarah is 90 years old. Now imagine a couple, 190. And they're sitting at breakfast one morning, and Sarah, the 90-year-old wife, says to Abraham, who is eating his toast, I'm pregnant. <laughs> you got to say, good for you, Abraham, you know. Uh, but we have a parallel here with Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're an elderly couple, and she is going to become pregnant. And Zechariah is stunned. Not only that he's going to have a child, 
but that this fearsome creature is speaking to him inside the tabernacle. How, how, will, I, how will I know this? It's not an expression of doubt. It, it's utter bewilderment at the enormity of what he's being told. And the angel answered, I am, the, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. I don't see this as a punishment for disbelief. Zechariah is so astonished at what he's heard that he can't wrap his head around it. How can I understand this? And Gabriel tells him, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to plunge you into silence for nine months and allow you to think about this and come to understand it. I see it as a great gift. And notice in this story how many people are plunged into silence. All the main characters are. Well, meanwhile, us, Bill's tour group to Italy, were waiting for Zachariah and wondering why he was staying so long in the temple. Why this should have taken about five minutes and 20 minutes have gone by. Gosh, I hope he didn't die in there. When he finally came out, he couldn't speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. <laughs> when he came out, he, he was totally pale, his mouth gaping open, his eyes wide, and he kept making signs to them, but was unable to speak. <sighs> Zachariah, what's wrong? <sighs> 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 When his time of service was completed, that is, the two weeks are over, he returned home. Zechariah and Elizabeth live in the hill country of Ephraim, which is a short distance north of Jerusalem. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. She's given five months to ponder all these events. So she, Zechariah, plunges into seclusion and silence. And then Elizabeth becomes pregnant that month. Then for five months, out to the sixth month of her pregnancy, she's in seclusion. She and Zechariah, silently secluded, getting their heads around this whole thing. She said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Meanwhile, the camera cuts. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Nazareth, if you picture a map of Israel, go north from Jerusalem through the central mountain range, which opens out into the Jezreel Valley, a triangular-shaped valley that begins at the tip of the Sea of Galilee and follows the Jordan River south 
and from the tip of the Sea of Galilee over toward Mount Carmel on the west coast and then draw the triangular line on the mountain range. That's the Jezreel Valley. Nazareth is a little finger ridge on the Jezreel Valley that parallels the main international trade route, the Via Maris. Nazareth is a nothing town. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Hebrew scriptures. And even in Jesus' day, it had at most 20 extended families. It might have been a village of a couple of hundred people at best. And it was out in the boondocks. It was on a finger ridge overlooking the Via Maris. It was, in effect, a truck stop on the, on the way to Syria, Damascus. Nothing. In fact, when Nathaniel is told, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel said, what good could come out of Nazareth? It would be like my saying to you, uh, we were going to do this uh, talk today on the birth of Christ, and it's an appropriate time to do it, because this week I was on a trip, and the Lord has returned. I met him. He's living in Barstow. Right? <laughs> it's exactly like saying Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazareth? What good could come from there? So in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, in this day, this time, this culture, a pledge to be married is as good as being married. In our culture, you meet someone, you spend time with them, you get to know them, you become engaged, and a while later, you get married. The engagement is a kind of interim period to plan for the wedding. But not in the Middle East, and especially not in this time and culture. A few years back, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East. Uh, I'll be going to Egypt December 27th. Uh, some of you folks will be going with me. But a few years back, my son Adam, Adam is 32 years old now, and he uh, teaches at University of Texas at Austin. But he and I went to Egypt together. He hadn't been to Egypt. I wanted to take him, and just the two of us. And uh, there were new areas that I wanted to scout out and some things I wanted to do there. So the two of us went together. And my colleague in Egypt, uh, Imad Samir, uh, met with us, and we traveled, the three of us, together. And one evening, uh, we went to dinner at Imad's home. Now, in the Middle East, if you're invited to someone's home for dinner, that is a big deal, a really big deal. We invite people for dinner all the time in our culture. If you're invited to the home of someone in the Middle East for dinner, it is a great honor. It's an honor. So we were at uh, Imad's for dinner, and as the dinner was being prepared, uh, Adam and Imad were talking, and... Imad's wife was there and his two children, two little children. And Imad at the time was maybe 36, 37 years old. So he and Adam were similar in age. And Adam said, well, how did you meet your wife? You know, what's dating like in Egypt? And Imad said, well, it's very different from dating in the U.S. or in Western countries. He said, you don't just meet a girl and ask her out to a movie. 
said, I met my wife, I saw her, I took notice of her, and my father approached her father to ask if we might meet. And when we did meet, my family went with me and her family was with her and we met. And after we met and we had the approval of our families, then we began to date. But every time we went out, her brother came with us and was an escort. When you marry, you don't marry the girl, you marry the whole family. And you've really joined two families together. And he said, so unlike in the, in the U.S., he said in, uh, in Egypt and in Middle Eastern cultures, uh, he said, you don't go out, you, you don't have sex with a girl before you get married. You, you, that would never happen. If it did, in many parts of the Middle East today, that girl would, would have shamed her family and she would be killed. It would be an honor killing. And her own family would kill her. It, it's very, very strict. And an engagement in, that, in this culture carries far more weight than an engagement here because two families have agreed to come together, to bring their resources together, and the man and the woman marrying are the point people on bringing those resources together. You choose your wife very, very carefully. You don't just fall in love, get married, and oh boy, let's hope for the best. It's way more than that. So Mary is engaged to be married to Joseph. And what would she expect of this engagement and this life? Well, she's living in a little town, Nazareth, out in the boondocks, maybe a couple of hundred people total in the village, and everybody would know about them. Everybody would be awaiting the day of the big wedding. Everybody would be very happy for them. And Mary, in her own mind, would certainly, she knows nothing about the Annunciation at this point, she would certainly be looking forward to a very nice life with Joseph, the man she has agreed to marry. And what's the first commandment in the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply. She would be looking forward to being a wife, a mother, having a place in that little village in Nazareth. And people didn't move. You lived there, you died there. That would be your home. And she must have had in her own mind a vision of her future with Joseph. She had expectations about what her life would be like. Well, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Well, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Well, more than troubled, she's terrified. Just as with Zechariah, Gabriel suddenly appears. You know, he has a way of doing that. Every time we see Gabriel for the first time in Daniel chapter 8, and he has this way of just suddenly be standing there beside you, and every time the person he's suddenly standing beside goes, ah, and they're scared to death. He just sort of pops into view and scares the heck out of you. Well, here's Mary, greatly troubled at this event and wonder what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, as angels always do, fear not. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name 
Jesus. Now this is big news to her. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Think of that news. Mary has in her mind a vision of her future with Joseph that now, she's told, is going to be turned totally upside down. She's going to have a child by someone other than Joseph. Now she's betrothed to marry him. This is a problem. So she asks in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, not doubt, but tell me, since I'm a virgin and I fully intend to remain a virgin until Joseph and I are married, what will the mechanics of this be? Now, how's this going to work? And Gabriel answered, well, here's how it will work. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And notice the kind of euphemistic terms. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And I think Gabriel's blushing a bit on this, and he changes the subject real quickly. You know, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month of pregnancy. And Mary's thinking, how's this going to work? How, how will this be? And Gabriel said, nothing is impossible with God. Don't worry, he'll get it done. Well, Mary now has a choice to make. And it's a very difficult choice. First of all, if she says, yes, I accept your offer, I will become pregnant by someone else, and I will give birth to a child, and I won't be marrying Joseph, it seems, because why would Joseph have her? It would be shameful. My whole life is going to change. The expectations I had will fundamentally change. And not only that, if you look back in Deuteronomy, chapter 22, at verse 23, this is the Mosaic law. This is God's law from God's lips to Moses to you. Deuteronomy 22, verse 23. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married, that would be Mary, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. Every little girl growing up in this time and culture, Deuteronomy 22, verse 23, would be drummed into her head from the moment she could understand. You do not have sex with someone you're not married to. If you do, you will be stoned to death. It's as simple as that. And honestly, it still happens in the Middle East today with much more frequency than we're told. 
Mary knows that if she says yes, there's a distinct possibility that she would be accused by Joseph and by the townspeople and she would be stoned to death. There's also the distinct possibility that even if that doesn't happen, everyone in that town will know that she's pregnant by someone other than Joseph. And even if she marries him, which is highly unlikely in this time and place, even if she marries him, she will be a social outcast, she will be a pariah in that small town for the rest of her life. She will have given birth to a bastard son, and that would not be acceptable in that place and in that time. There is a lot to lose for her. She has to be pondering this at light speed in her mind because Gabriel is standing there waiting for an answer. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the great uh, mystical writers of the Middle Ages, wrote a series of sermons for Advent and the sermon that he wrote for December 22nd, I believe, focused upon the pause between verses 37 and 38. When Gabriel said, nothing is impossible with God, he waited for Mary's response. And between verses 37 and 38, there is a pregnant pause. <laughs> and St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, between verses 37 and 38, all the angels lined up on the battlements of heaven watching this scene. And when Gabriel said, nothing is impossible with God, and paused, all the angels on the battlements of heaven drew a collective gasp and waited for her response. And she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And with that, said Bernard of Clairvaux, all the angels on the battlements of heaven went, <laughs> plans on, right? An important thing to note here, Mary is not forced into making this decision. She is presented an offer. It's a freely given offer, and she has the perfect freedom to say yes or no. And she has to weigh in the scales, what will the consequences be? If she says no, then what will become of her life? Exactly what the vision she had was. That she would marry Joseph, she would have a lovely family, she would have friends in town, and all these things would go on just the way she had envisioned. If she says yes, that life is over. It will no longer be possible. If she says yes, there is a distinct possibility that she will be taken to the gates of the town and stoned to death. There is a distinct possibility that Joseph will reject her. There is a distinct possibility that she will become a pariah and an outcast in that town. And beyond that, the future is completely uncertain. We often respond, uh, we often think of her response as a response of great faith, and it is. 
it's a response of great faith in God. But I think even more than that, her response is one of great courage. She has a lot to lose. When she says, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. We learn later in scripture, particularly in Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, that we are saved by grace through faith. We're born into a condition of sin, as in Genesis chapter 3, with no interest in God, no desire for God, no capacity for God whatsoever, until God provides the grace that awakens us to his presence. And when he does, we're drawn toward him. And we want to know him. And as we know him, we come to believe him. And as we believe him, we come to trust him. And at some point, he says to us, I would like you to spend eternity with me. Would you have me? And you have the choice, as Mary has the choice, to say, yes, I accept your offer, and you step into the family of God. You move positionally from the world into the family of God, the church. The word church in Greek is ekklesia. We get the word ecclesiastic from it. Ek, the preposition ek, out of, if I go out of the door, that's ek, and the verb kaleo, the verb to call. The church is those called out of the world into the family of God. We get into the family of God by grace through faith. And we live in the family of God, as Paul will say, by a life of active love or a life worthy of the calling we've received or a life of good works. So we get in the family of God by grace through faith. We live in the family of God by a life of active love. But how do we get there? It's a choice. God offers us the opportunity and we have to reach out and take it. You know, and it's a genuine a genuine offer. If I were to say to you, I'm going to give you my watch. It's yours, freely given. It's a fair offer. But you have to reach out and take hold of it in order to get it. So when God offers us salvation, we have to reach out and say yes and take his hand and step into the family of God. It's as simple as that. In this scene at the Annunciation, Mary is the first person to say yes to Christ. And in that sense, Mary is a model of faith for all of us. Because when we're asked to say yes to Christ, with it, well, comes some degree of difficulty. Your life will not be the same. You're going to move from the world into the family of God, and in the family of God, there are responsibilities and obligations. Do you want to take those on? If you move from the world into the family of God, is your family going to support you? Or are they going to mock you and ridicule you and make your life miserable? If you move into the family of God, well, in our culture, uh, probably not that much of a risk, but in other cultures, will you lose your job? Imad Samir, our colleague in Egypt, Egypt is a predominantly Muslim country, uh, Imad is a Coptic Christian. Being a Christian 
in a predominantly Muslim country carries with it some serious disadvantages. In employment, for example, a Muslim in Egypt, for the most part, wouldn't hire a Christian. You know, Imad works with Christian tour groups through an agency, but he has to be, frankly, very careful how he works with that agency so as not to offend because the agency is owned by a Muslim family. But Christian tourism's a big business and he's a Christian tour leader, so there's a give and take there. But you have to walk carefully. In other parts of the world, if you were to become a Christian, it would mean your death. You would be killed by your family or your community. So to say yes to Christ carries with it risk to one degree or another. And most certainly your life is going to change profoundly. So here's the offer. And what do you say to God? Oh yes, happy to do it. Or do you say, well, you know, I, I, I saw those people at that Saturday seminar in the Christmas story and I don't know if I want to be like them or not. <laughs> you know, here they are, Saturday morning, sitting, no, I don't think I want to do that. It was Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, uh, who was not a Christian, but whose wife was, uh, when asked why he wasn't a Christian, responded by saying, I would have been a Christian, but I knew too many of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's a risk. There's a risk. And during this pregnant pause, Mary is weighing the risks. And she says, yes. And in doing so, becomes a model of both faith and courage for every single person afterward who says yes to Christ. Now, those risks are going to become evident very quickly. First of all, what is Joseph going to say? Because like Mary, Joseph had a life envisioned with her. He loved her. And he expected when he married her that he would have a lovely family, he would be the father of the family, and they would have friends and all these things would occur. Notice, nobody asked Joseph about this. Mary makes the decision. She's not consulting with him. She just makes it. So what will Joseph do? Well, I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. We hope you've enjoyed The Christmas Story with Dr. Creasy, recorded live at St. Peter's-by-the-Sea Presbyterian Church in Huntington Beach, California. For more of Dr. Creasy's teaching, log on to the global classroom of LogosBibleStudy.org, the most comprehensive, in-depth Bible teaching on the planet. That's LogosBibleStudy.org. See you there.